as my pastor would say, the word of God for the people of God. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. And Brother Fernando asked me about a title, and maybe Pastor Ryan, this is something you got to help me work on. I'm just not good with titles, of titling a message. I, I don't know, I just... I kind of go with the natural themes of the scripture, and so there's so many things we're going to hit in here. And But I guess the best way to describe it, what we're going to be looking at is the biblical church, if that makes any sense, the biblical church. So we're looking at Revelations chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Amen, body of believers. And so let us read that, and then we'll come back and, and go over it. Revelations chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the biblical church, the biblical church. I have the NASB, so if you have a different version, it may read a little bit different, but it should all take us to the same place, if you have a, a decent translation. <laughs> and the word of God reads, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. Good. And you have perseverance. And have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Verse four, key verse, turning point in this, in this letter. But I have this against you that you have left your first love or the love that you first had. Verse five. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else. I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. A biblical church. Before we get into the main text, I, I think it's good for us to get a, a context of, of what we're reading. This is the book of Revelation, and this is probably one of the most mispronounced books of the Bible. Because most people say Revelations with an S at the end. But you see, it's just called the book of Revelation. But in this book, you have the Apostle John. He is exiled on the land of Patmos for, uh, for the word and testimony of Jesus. This is very similar to our, brother, uh, our brothers Hamid and, and David and his wife, just like they were um, pushed out of their country for the testimony and word of Jesus. That is what's happening here with John. He is exiled on this island. And guess what? I, I know that we see a lot of persecution of Christians in the Middle East, and in other places, but you know what? That is actually starting to come here to America now. And you see that with many of the, of the laws that are being changed. And so we see this persecution now coming here to America. But John here in this text, he is writing on the island of Patmos, and John gets this vision. Or in other words, he is taken in the spirit, and he sees the glorified Christ. And if you look at verse 13 in chapter 1, he says that, go there, verse 13, chapter 1, he says that he saw one like the Son of Man. 
He says, I saw one like a son of man. Do you notice that this is the same language that was that that Daniel used in uh, Daniel chapter seven, verse 13? You remember when, when Daniel got that vision and he, and he seen said one like the son of man come and then he received honor and glory and dominion and he, he identifies this person as the son of man just like John did. And also Jesus, the term that he most frequently used to identify himself as he walked on the earth was what? Son of man. So John is now seeing the Son of Man, and he is seeing Jesus in his glorified state, and he says that he sees him walking or standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And it also says in this text in chapter 1 that Jesus is holding seven stars in his hand. So imagine that you see Jesus, he's holding these seven stars in the star in his right hand, and he's walking in the midst of these, these, these seven lampstands, kind of like a menorah, if you're familiar with Jewish culture, and they have those different um, candles. So he, he is standing in the midst of these, these seven lampstands, and he's holding these stars in his hand, and he commissions John to write. He commissions him to write, and he commissions John to write to seven churches, seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor is what we would call modern-day Turkey. So he's writing to these, these seven churches in Asia Minor. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, Christ's words to the church in Ephesus. And basically, we're going to get a lesson, if you will, or we're going to do a study on ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is just a big fancy word for the study of the church. That's all it is. Ology, the study, ecclesiology, ecclesia, it's just the church, the called out ones, the body. So it's the study of the church. And what we're going to see in these first five verses, we're going to see um, the authority and responsibility of the shepherd or pastor. We're going to see the responsibility of the church and its members. And we're going to see the fuel that should be driving the church, which is love, a little heads up. And we're going to also see what can happen when the church runs low on this fuel that it so desperately needs. So we're going to see the church, the pastor. We're going to look at the responsibility of us, the body of Christ, the members. We're going to see the driving fuel of the church. And we're going to see what happens when the church runs low on that fuel. And that all can be found in verses 1 through 5. Amen. So in Revelation chapter one, I'm sorry, chapter two, verse one, he starts off by saying to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Now, amongst many theologians, there's some speculation when it talks about angels. Some say that there is an actual guardian angel of the different churches, and that's who this is directed to. But that's more of a, a fringe type view. But the, the more consensus view is that this angel that he is writing to is the, the pastor. It's the shepherd. It's the, the leader of the church. And so when it says the angel, it's referring to the, the pastor or the elders of the church. But we also see that the elder or the angels of the church is also identified as stars. So we see the church or the, the elders and the pastors being identified as angels. And we also see in verse 20 in chapter 1 that the, that the pastors are identified as stars. But let's go back to the verse 1 where he says angel. What is an angel? When you think about an angel, when he says to the angel of the church, what is an angel? An angel, in a proper sense, it is a messenger. It is someone that is sent. It is a servant of God sent to serve and not to be served. And guess what? That should be the heart of an elder, pastor, or shepherd. It is to serve. 
It is to be a servant. And so he says to the angel of the church, because that is the role or that is what a elder or pastor's heart be. It should be to serve. It should be to give a message. But then he says again back in verse 20 that these elders or pastors are also identified as stars in the right hand of God. Why does he say stars in the right hand of God? Because throughout Scripture, even in the secular world, the right hand of anything meant to be in a position of authority. That is why when you look at Acts 7.56, when we see Stephen about to be stoned, what happens? He says, I see the Son of Man. There goes that term, Son of Man, again. I see the Son of Man standing at what? The right hand of God. And then you go to Hebrews 10.12, after Jesus had offered himself up as a sacrifice for sin, the scripture says that Jesus had sat down at the right hand of God. So the right hand means a position or a place of authority. And so that is why these stars who are the pastors or elders are in the right hand of Jesus, because this is now a, a position of authority. But that authority that the pastor or elder has, guess what? It is not a third, uh, an authority that he can act out on his own free will, but it is an authority that is given to him by Christ and goes no more than what Christ has allowed. So it is showing us just in this one verse what the role of an elder or a pastor is. They have this authority in the body of Christ. But guess what? This authority does not come without a weight. This authority that the elder or the shepherd has, who he's writing to, guess what? It does not come without a weight. And how do we know that? Because in the first six verses, look what it says. It says to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Notice this. This letter to the church in Ephesus, it has been written to the whole church. It is addressing the whole church and its members. But guess what? Specifically, the letter is written to who? The leadership. It is written to the elder. It is written to the shepherd. Why? Because they bear the bulk of the responsibility of the direction and the activity in the church. So even though this letter is to the whole church, the one that it is being addressed to is the elder or the shepherd of the church. And I want to show you something. Look at Hebrews 13, 7. Hebrews 13, 7. Hebrews 13, 7 says this. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over, look, your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So we send the elders or the shepherds or the pastor, guess what? Their responsibility, they must watch over for your souls. And that's what we see in here in the text in Revelation. The elder or shepherd must watch over for your soul. So guess what? When God looks down at the bridge, yes, he sees our activity. Yes, he sees the different members. But guess what? Guess who he's really, guess who really has to have an account? Who, who really has to give an account? It's the elder or the shepherd of the church. So God is looking at us at the bridge, but he's looking at the elder or the shepherd because they have a bulk of the responsibility of shepherding the church, of the direction or the activity of what's going on in the body of Christ. So this is our elder. And I liken this relationship between the pastor and the church to Adam and Eve in a garden. 
So think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember, Eve is the one who took the fruit, right? She's the one that bit the fruit, right? And then she passes it to who? What? Adam. But when God comes, who does he call? Who does he call? He calls Adam. Why? Because he is her head. And that's the same thing like with the church. God is looking at the elders. He's looking at the leaders. These are the ones that have the, the bulk of the responsibility. So if I am the elder, or if I am in leadership at the church of Ephesus, and when I, when I get this letter, guess what? The hairs of my arm are going to stand up because I see that this, this letter is now being directed towards me, even though it's about the whole church, but he has it directed towards the leadership. So any elder or pastor, you cannot look at this verse and the hair is not raised up because God is holding elders and pastors accountable for the direction of the body of Christ in the local church. So we see that verse 1 itself just starts out with a bang. It starts out with a heavy weight about this letter to the church in Ephesus to the angels. But as we keep reading, let's see what it says. So to the angels of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, we now know the identity of the seven stars. The seven stars are the pastors. Then it says, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. So what does the lampstands represent? We understand what the stars represent. The stars represent the leadership, the elders or the pastors. But what does the lampstand represent? In verse 20, we see that the lampstands represent the church. That is us. That is the makeup of the body. It is the church. And guess what? When you go back to Old Testament scripture, it'll really make clear what a lampstand means. Because in the Old Testament, for example, when they built the sanctuary, the sanctuary was split up between um, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. Between the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies, there was a large veil. That's why we read about Jesus ripping the veil and opening up the Holy of Holies. So you had this large veil, and to the left you had the, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest would go in once a year to make an atonement. And then you had the holy place, where the, the priest would go in and perform their, their daily duties. Well, in this holy place, guess what you had as the only source of light there? A lampstand. It was the lampstand. The lampstand was the only source of light there. That was the source of light for the priest when they carried out their duties. And the priest had this responsibility to make sure that this lampstand, this light, never went out. But as we know, my biblical scholars, as you know, the things in the Old Testament, they were all types and shadows of Jesus. Because Jesus says what? That I am the true light of the world. So those that, that lamp that was in the temple was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who would be the true light of the world, who would never go out. So since Jesus Christ is the true light of the world and we are his disciples and we carry his light, the church is a lifestand because they give out the light of Jesus to the world. That is why we are called a lampstand. We hold the light of Christ. We hold the light of the gospel. The church, I mean, the world should be able to see the light of Jesus in us, the church. So we are a lampstand. We should put forth the light of truth. And that is a, a good reason, I believe, why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church should be the pillar and ground or the support of the truth. Because we are giving out the light. 
And that is what the church is supposed to be. It is a candle lampstand that gives out the truth of love, the truth of life, the truth of joy, the truth of peace. Peace. That is the church. We are the pillar and ground for truth. And I remember um, my uh, seminary professor, Dr. Frank Walker at City Seminary, he would often say when he came to this verse, 1 Timothy 3.15, that a person that is uh, out of fellowship with the church, because they are away from the pillar and grounds of truth, it is so easy for them to go astray. And that is why many people go astray, because they are away from the pillar and the ground of truth, which is the church. We are that light. We are the pillar and ground of truth. And that is why when you stay away and you're not in fellowship, it's really easy to go and fall away to the schemes of this world. Because your brothers and sisters, we are bringing truth here. And so it's really easy to fall away. So now that we have this, now that we understand that the, the lamps are the churches, that is what a church does. It stands and it shines. And notice every church is a lampstand. Every church, whether big or small, guess what? It is a lampstand, and it has a responsibility to let its light shine to the world and present the truth of the gospel. I remember I heard a pastor say once before that if your church closed its doors, if your church closed its doors and moved to another community with the community that it left, notice that life has left its community. Would they notice that that light that was once there is gone? Or would they not even notice? See, that is why being a church is more than just coming here and singing songs. It is more than just attending Bible studies. It is more than just reading our Bible. But we have a responsibility, guess what, for action, to resist evil, to, to meet the needs of people. That is why Jesus says in Matthew 25, we see him talking about um, the needs of the homeless being met. We see him talking about the needs of the sick being met. We see him talking about the needs of the prisoners being met. The church is to be a light and that light moves with action it is not a stagnant thing yes it is to shine but it is to shine in action and paul tells us in galatians 6 10 that we ought to do good unto all men so the church responsibility is to shine it's to shine the truth of the gospel through evangelism it's to shine in our actions and, and care for the sick and the needy and the poor and the downcast. That is the responsibility of the lampstand to shine. So now let's, let's dig a little bit deeper in this text and, and let's look at the light of the Ephesians in verse 2 now. Let's look at the light of the Ephesians. And please understand, as we look at this text, yes, we can look at the church in Ephesus with a critical eye. But guess what? When Christ returns, that look now it's going to be upon the bridge. So yes, we can look at this church in Ephesus right now with a critical eye, but guess what? When Christ returns, that light, people will be examining our light as a church. So I pray that you look at this with grace and with mercy as we examine more of what the church of Ephesus looked like and their, their light. So let's read what it says in, in, in verse 2 and 3. It says, I know your deeds your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false 
and you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So when we look at this, we see that the church of Ephesus, they are shining like a light. Is that what we see here? They are, they are shining like a light. They are making sure that the church is the pillar and ground for truth because they are testing or they are testing the false apostles. They're not tolerating evil men. So they themselves, they're doing pretty good. They're making sure that false doctrine is not being spread. They're, they're, they're making sure that heresy is not being spread. They are being strong as a church. They're making sure it stays as the pillar and ground of truth. They are doing what a church is supposed to do. They are making sure that a root of bitterness does not spring up and defile the many. Matter of fact, I want to show you this verse to show you how on it these Ephesians are. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Hebrews 12, 15. You hear? Look what it says. It says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. And here goes our verse. And that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled a root of bitterness is just a false doctrine it could be it could be a false teaching guess what that could spring up in a church and it can cause a church to collapse that is the root of bitterness that that the writer of hebrew is warning against he says make sure that no root of bitterness springs up because that root of bitterness can cause many to be defiled and so we see here with the church of ephesus they are making sure that root of bitterness is not being sprung up. They are making sure that those false teachers don't get in the church. They are making sure that evilness is not being tolerated in the church, which is good. So they're doing all of the right things. They are being militant about the word of God. They are being militant in fighting for truth. This is really a great thing, especially considering how they started. This is the church in Ephesus. You got to understand, Ephesus is like San Francisco, <laughs> It, 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 I'm sorry if somebody likes San Francisco in here. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean the place is beautiful, but I'm talking about the morals and, and different things like that. But Ephesus, this is, this is one of the largest city in Turkey, Asia Minor. And this was a very pagan city, and it was known for its temple to the Greek goddess Diana or Artemis. That's what this city was known about. This temple to Diana was so large that people would come all over the world just to visit this temple. This temple was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So this was a very pagan city. But Paul goes here, preaches the gospel, and from the gospel being preached, a church is planted. And now 40 years later, what we're reading here in Ephesians, 40 years later, depending on the dating of the books, 40 years later, this church of Ephesus is still standing in the most pagan place. 40 years later, after Paul goes and preaches the gospel, this church is still standing, and it is standing stronger than ever by resisting all of the evilness, and it is persevering. This church is doing all of the right things. If, if we looked at this church, we would say, man, this church is on it. They're doing all the things that a church is supposed to be. They're, they're doctrinally sound because they're resisting evil. They're, they're a good biblical church. But guess what? A good biblical church is good. A good doctrinal church is good. 
But as we're going to see, there is something else that this church is missing beyond good biblical teaching and beyond sound doctrine. Let's look at the text. In four, look what it says. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So they are a solid church. They are resisting evil. They are resisting false teachers. They are a solid biblical doctrinal church. Yet there is something missing. What is it? It was love. See, it is not just enough to have a biblical church. It is not just enough to have sound doctrine. But we want a biblical church. We want biblical teaching. We want sound doctrine in love. Without it, you just have stale religion. And that was the problem here. See, the church in Pergamia, if you look at chapter 2 and verses 12 down to 17, the church of Pergamia, they had a doctrine problem. They had a biblical teaching problem, not the church in Ephesus. See, the church in Pergamia, they were allowing false teachers. They were allowing false doctrine. But the church of Ephesus, no, their doctrine was right. Their teaching was right, but yet it wasn't enough. Because you cannot just have great teaching without great love. You have to love the people you teach with. You have to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is not just enough to have sound teaching on its own. You need the whole gamut. And I think about, um, matter of fact, a, a great example of this is Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if some of you are familiar with Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a pastor and, and, and a theologian during the time of um, the Nazi reign. And he's famous and well celebrated because he was one of the few pastors, or I think the only pastor, that participated in the assassination of Adolf Hitler. And since we know that Hitler didn't get assassinated, we know that that plot didn't work, right? But Bonhoeffer himself, this guy was a theologian. I believe he had a doctorate in some area of theology. He taught in the university theology. He, he, he was a pastor. He was a teacher. But guess what? Later on in life, Bonhoeffer said, that is when I got converted. He, he had read the Sermon on the Mount, and that is the time when he got converted. That was after his doctorate. That was after his teaching of university students. That was after his pastorate. See, he had the right doctrine. He had the right teaching, yet he didn't have Christ. See, you can have all of those solid things that we so cherish in the church, but if love is not there, it becomes cold. And that is what is happening here in the church of Ephesus. They have the great pieces. They have the great teaching. They're militant for truth. They're fighting the enemy, but something is lacking. We see that is love. And before we get into the debate of what love was it? Was it the love for the brethren or was it the love for Christ? Don't miss the point. The major point is that they were a church actively engaged in biblical ministry. They were not a lazy church, but because they didn't have love, they were an incomplete church. So this tells me that you can be active in evangelism. We can be active in church attendance. We can be active in Bible study. We can be active in homeless ministry. We can be active in convalescent ministry. We can read our Bibles till we're blue in the face. But guess what? If love is missing, it becomes incomplete. It's void. You can go through all the motions you want. You can be an evangelist. You can do all of these different things. But guess what? If you're not loving the people you're speaking to, 
If you're, if you're not driven by a love for Christ, guess what? Your efforts become void. It becomes void without love. And this should sound very familiar to us because there's a, a verse of scripture that speaks really to this. 1 Corinthians 13. Let's go there. 1 Corinthians 13. Let's just read one through three real quick. He says, the scripture, the word of God, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, look, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, guess what? I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, guess what? It profits me what? Nothing. Nothing. Love. Love is so important. And we see that the church in Ephesus had slacked or fallen away on what? Love. He said they had fallen away from their first love. Now, let's get to the, the, the fun part, I guess you would say, the debate on what love is this? Because I know some like to debate, is it the love for the brethren or is it the love for Christ? They're talking about that they're falling away. Um, let, me, let me put my position out here. Um, my position is I agree with most commentators that this love that they have fallen away for is a, the love for Christ, their first love. So I, I, uh, I agree with that's the love because our, our love for other people flows out of our love for Christ. He's the filter. It's, it is through Christ and then it goes all throughout other people. And so our, our love for Christ, it kind of filters throughout to all people. But look, but regardless, tell me this. Do you think that if a person or do you think that a person will heal well done if they love Christ? Guess what? But not his bride. Do you think a person would hear, hear, well done by God if they truly love Christ, but not his bride, which is the church who he died for? I don't think so. Why? Because Jesus says in John 13, 35, guess what? That the world would know that we are his disciples, what? By the love that we had for one another. So it can't be that he's just saying, oh, they fell out of love with Christ. But it can also be that they fell out of love with each other. Or you can even look at it on the other end. Can we love one another crazy and not love Christ? No. So regardless, even though I agree with the, the most commentators that this, this love is the love of Christ that they fell away from, from, regardless, if you don't have this love, your ministry, your church is incomplete. It's not full. It's not sound, true sound. And here's the thing. When love is removed away from the church, guess what comes in? When, when love grows cold or when we fall away from love, guess what comes in? Legalism comes in. In comes religious tradition comes in. Self-righteousness comes in. See, love should be the thing that got you here this morning, not your car. 
Your car should not have got you here this morning. It should be a love for Christ that got you here this morning. It should be a love for the brethren that got you here this morning, not your car. Yes, your alarm woke you up, but it should be love that got you on your way. When your kids are yelling in the back, it should still be love that is driving you to this place. A love for Jesus, a love for his body. See, love is the thing that should have got you here, not the vehicle. It's love. Love is the driving force. And without it, you're just going to have legalism. You're just going to have, well, it's Sunday, so you're supposed to go to church. And then it becomes this cold, religious just thing that you do. Oh, it's America, so on Sundays we go to church in America. Then it just becomes that. And your church is now lacking in love. And then the church becomes this, this cold and dry place full of legalism. You know how I know that legalism leads to a lack of love? An example, the Galatians. Let's look here. Galatians chapter 1. This is going to be our case study to, to show us that, guess what? Without love, you're going to have legalism. Go to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. We here? Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Look what it says. This is Paul. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. Look, for a different gospel. He says, I'm amazed. See, what, what has happened in just a little history, Paul has preached the gospel. These Galatians got converted. They, they fell in love with Jesus. They received salvation. And guess what happens? A root of bitterness springs up in the church. See, they're not as militant as the Ephesians. Remember, the Ephesians cut that out. The Ephesians said, nope, false apostles, you're not getting no room here. Evil men, you're not getting any room here. They cut out that root of bitterness, the church in Ephesus. But we see here the church in the, the Galatians, we see that they allowed a rooter, root of bitterness to spring up in the church. And this root of bitterness that sprung up convinced them that Jesus Christ wasn't enough. He convinced the church that Jesus Christ wasn't enough. And in order to have salvation, you needed to follow these commandments. You needed this legalism. You needed circumcision. You needed Sabbath days. You needed holy days. See, that's what happens when that root of bitterness springs up. In came legalism. When the love of Christ fell off, when the love of Christ grew cold, in comes legalism. And that is what happens here with this church. Legalism came in. Jesus wasn't enough. Christ wasn't sufficient. So now give me these rules. Give me these, these rigid things that I have to follow so, to, so I can receive salvation. And love does not become the driving or motivating force now. See, my brothers and sisters, that's why there are so many bad churches. The love of Christ has grown cold. It's about traditions. It's about the latest fad. It's about being cool. And when the love of Christ grows cold, you have a cold church. So that is what is happening here. Let's get back to the Revelations. Revelations. See, I said Revelations would have asked myself. So we see that verse 3 through 4, they're doing the right things. But then verse 4 shows us that they left their first love. They fell off. And verse 5 tells us this. It says, therefore... Remember from where you have fallen and repent 
and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. If the church of Ephesus does not repent and turn around and do the deeds that are directed by love, Christ promises to remove their lampstand, meaning that they would no longer be a church. That is how important love is to a church. He said, I will remove your, 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 your lampstand. Body of Christ, please understand, it is so easy to fall in love with a ministry and allow your, your love for Christ to go cold. It, it, it is so easy to fall in love with, with maybe you like to serve. Maybe God has given you this ability to serve and you want to just serve others. It is so easy to get just so caught up in that and your love for Christ to go cold. It is so, so easy to get caught up in to worship. Do you know that you can worship worship and not the God of worship? And what I mean by that, for example, I've heard of people that's, that go to a particular church because they like the choir. Or they go to a particular church because they like the praise and worship team. And after the choir is done and the praise and worship team is done, they're ready to go. Where is love? That is how you can worship worship. But no, it is love. That is what makes a church. That is what makes us complete. And even, you can even fall in love with speakers, and I'm guilty of that because I love John Piper. I love Mr. Francis Chan. But i got to watch it, and I'm not idolizing these gentlemen and just wanting to see them. But I want to see the God that is working in them. See, we must watch it, my brothers and sisters. It is so easy to fall and allow your love for Christ to go cold because you're focused on something else. The church in Ephesus, they were militant about truth. They were militant in their sound doctrine and their teaching. That wasn't their problem. But they had a lack of love. So that's so important. So I must ask you this question. Do you really love Christ? Do you really love Jesus? Does your heart beat for Jesus? I'm asking even another question. Do you love the person that you're sitting right next to? Do you? Do you love the person you're sitting next to? Do you love me, your brother in Christ? Or is this just church? Are we just coming here to sing songs and, and to clap and eat lunch? The church has to be fueled by love, love for Jesus and love for one another. That is our distinguishing factor. That is how the, the world would know that we are his disciples. It's the love that we have for one another. That's it, my brothers and sisters. The church in Ephesus, they went cold. They had the right things, but love was lacking. We as a body here, Love has to be our central thing. Love for Jesus. Love for one another. That is how we persevere. Without it, we're going to become a rigid bunch of grumpy people. Just going to ritual church at Sunday, and there's days when you don't want to get out of bed. And if love is not the thing that's motivating, you're going to stay in that bed. You're going to, I know my, one of my things that my pastor would say, he would say that, um, how does he say it? He said that if you need an excuse, the devil will give you one. He would say, or he said that the devil will give you, 
he'll give you bullets to fire off your gun. Like it's if you want a reason not to come to church, not to fellowship, that will give you one. But we must understand love should be our driving force that gets us here. So this is what I want to do to wrap up. I want to ask each person to your right. If you don't have somebody to your right, to your left. Let's pray for that person. So whoever's to your right, if you have nobody to your right, go to your left. And what we're going to do, we're just going to go into a church prayer. And so how we're going to do it is somebody starts. When they're done, you just pray for the person that's next to you. When they're done praying for you, then you pray for them. And as you're praying for one another, I'm just going to be praying for the whole body. So we got it. To your right. There's nobody to your right. Look to your left. You pray for them. Once you're done, they'll pray for you. And I'm going to just pray for the whole body. And we're going to pray that God makes us a church that loves each other and that loves Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. So let's let's do it. Get to your. Amen. This is everybody. If there's somebody to your right or your left, let's let's just let's pray for the love of Christ to love one another as a church and vice versa. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I thank you for today, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word and our encouragement on love, Father God. Lord God, I pray that you just touch my brothers and sisters that are here, Lord Jesus. God, I pray that they be a church that is full of love, God, that we love one another, Lord Jesus, and that we love you more, Lord God. Make our hearts burn for you, God, that we don't just judge each other, God, that we love each other in true love, Father God. Hallelujah to your name, Lord Jesus. Just touch your people, God. Take that guilt take that stuff that is not of you god move it into your people father god that we be a church full of love lord jesus that love comes out of our mouth god that love spews forward out of this church father god thank you for the revelation of the scripture god about love and the church of ephesus father god we want to be a church that is complete lord jesus we want to love you and we want to love one another god we want to be a sound church in biblical teaching and doctrine but it's fueled by love lord jesus god touch your people today lord god god may we love one another may our hearts burn for one another god and worshiping you father god may we meet each other's needs father god when someone has a want father god i pray that you put it on our brothers and sisters heart to go and meet that need lord jesus God, we call upon you, Lord. We know that prayer is the thing that changes things, God. So change the atmosphere of the believers here, Lord God. May we be a church full of love, a love that is loving you. A love that is loving your word, God. A love that loves the things of God, that loves the sacraments of God, that loves the beauty of God, that loves Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf. God, may we be that church. Lord, touch our minds. Touch our hearts and our body. That we are that strong church for you, Lord God. That we love one another, Lord God. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.